Amen. So um, there are uh, just a few things uh, before we get started. I just want to welcome publicly Rick Widener from the ARC. You've already been welcomed, but feel welcome more. Um, it's good for you to be here. We're, we're glad to see you. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to um, get right into the material real quick here. Um, but before, before I do, um, I just want to say how much I appreciate um, you uh, attentive listeners out here, because <clears throat> this is kind of a, a little bit of a, a foreground for today's message. Um, today, we will have a little academic element. Uh, if you remember, I've been talking about chiastic structures. Does everybody remember that? It's the hamburger. It's the hamburger. We got the bun. We got the, the toppings. We got the meat. And then maybe some more toppings if you make your hamburgers like I do. I like both side toppings. And then the bun again. Or if you don't want to include the toppings, you've got the bun, the hamburger, and then the bun. And, and it forms uh, a that's like a chiastic structure. Um, so there's going to be one element of today's readings where we look at that. And it's, it's my opinion that when you hear the Word of God, you should also be listening to learn how to read and and understand the word of god that's um something that i have probably said you know every week for the last six months i'm trying to teach you how to read the bible by the way that we are expositing the the text as in we're going to go through it in a structured way and building on the ideas of each verse or section of verses we can understand the overall uh text and what the author is trying to tell us, what God would, would have for us to hear. So um, we've been, if you've been with us, uh, you, you may remember we're going through the writings of John and we are looking at a meta theme that's kind of been present in every chapter of John's writings. And that meta theme, if you remember, is the idea of light and darkness. That is, in the beginning of John's gospel, he says, in the beginning, you know, uh, was the word, and then he moves on to describe the word as the light of the world, which comes into the world, and the darkness cannot overpower it or surround it and overcome it. And so John is beginning, even in the first few verses, uh, to describe God as light, Jesus Christ as the light of the world, and set up a contrast between light and darkness. If you remember in John 3, when Nicodemus comes at night, he's doing it to hide himself, not wanting to be exposed to the other Pharisees as being one who is going to Christ. So Nicodemus goes under the cover of night and, and then he has a discussion with Jesus, which plainly shows that Nicodemus is blind. Jesus says to him, you're the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't know these things. You don't understand them. And so we move to the major, one of the major miracles in, in John, in John 9, with the man born blind. Uh, man born blind, he, he is first blind naturally, and then he is able to see naturally. And then Jesus, through his encounters with this blind man, actually opens up even his spiritual eyes to recognize Jesus as the Messiah. And then you see at the end of that chapter, the famous battle between the Pharisees and Jesus, the Pharisees ask Jesus the question, are we also blind? Jesus takes their question, reverses it, and shows the true postulate or the true assertion that they're saying. And he replies, because you say that you see. You got to see this transition here. They're asking a question, and Jesus, by the Spirit, understands the source 
of their heart, the, the, the evil in their heart, and says, your question's not a question, but rather you're saying that you see, you're asserting you have spiritual sight, you know God. And he says, because you say that you see, your blindness remains. Jesus is saying, if you would but recognize your darkness, if you would recognize your blindness, then I could do something about your blindness. I could open your eyes. Jesus comes in the gospels. He says, I didn't come for the whole or the healthy, but I came for the sick. And so John's theme of light and darkness has been our overarching paradigm for understanding and looking at the writings of John. We see in, we saw in Revelation when we celebrated Ascension how Jesus himself is this man who is glorified in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and he is on fire. Jesus himself is wearing white, and his shoes are a glowing bronze. I don't know if you've ever seen metal that's been glowing. If you want to do this at home, uh, you know, have a fire extinguisher nearby, but turn on a burner and then cl- turn off the lights and you'll see how metal glows when it's extremely hot. When John says that Jesus' feet are burnished bronze, he means Jesus is walking around in a holy fire place, a place of intense heat like Ezekiel 1 and uh and Jeremiah also has a similar vision, although there's not as much heat language there. So Jesus himself, we see the great picture there. His eyes, Jesus's eyes have fire in them. Not only is Jesus the one who sees, but his sight is true, as it were, light from light. Jesus is the one who is able to, to say concretely that he's beheld the glory of God. And so we, through observing Christ, are beholding the glory of God uh, through the face of Jesus Christ, as Paul says. So this chapter, as we are going to uh, look at today, continues with that light and darkness theme. So as you're reading John in any of the, the places, whether gospel, his, his three epistles, or revelation, any of those places, that is kind of a tool to use to understand what John is, is saying. Those who know God can see, they're not blind. And those who do not know God, they cannot see. So um, we're going to look at this at this chapter uh, earlier uh, a week ago. Actually, two weeks ago. I wasn't here last week. Two weeks ago, we looked at John, First uh, John three, and and First John two the week before that. And we we've been noting this idea that John is coming against false teaching in this church, and he's warring against the Gnostics and the Judaizers, who both say there's this secret knowledge or there's this other type of uh, knowledge that you need that isn't revealed in Jesus, that is the keeping of the law, etc. And so in these chapters, John is doing war against false apostles. If you remember, we talked about antichrists, and antichrists are not just antichrists in that they're teaching against Christ, but John actually calls them those who went out from among us, um, but we didn't send them. So in a way, they're not just antichrists, but our phrase was anti-apostles, because they are speaking messages that are against the apostolic teaching that Jesus has come in the flesh. And so John does battle again in this chapter, protecting the church, protecting those who are the true, true believers, encouraging them in their faith, giving them assurance, and simultaneously telling them to guard against false teachers and false brothers who do not love. So this uh, paradigm of love is what we're looking at today. John is again telling them to test out everyone or test out every doctrine and then also to behave in love, which are often 
done uh, exclusively. Some people get too far into to testing out and they want to discover everything about your theology right when they meet you and they, they want to size you up and judge you, uh, asking you your position on these doctrinal matters, and yet they don't even meet you or greet you with love. I, I believe we need to test test every spirit, as John says here, and we're going to look at it uh, closely, but we need to do uh, the testing in love. And loving is being thorough and being accurate, but also having a spirit of humility and mercy as we go about it. So we're going to look at these four elements of this passage today. We're going to look at testing spirits, what that means. Uh, if you are not uh, familiar with the writings uh, of Scripture, that, that may seem like a really mystical thing. I promise you it's not. We're going to look at the gospel as love. John here this is that academic portion that I've warned you about. Maybe you might want to go get coffee during that section. Um, we're going to look at Trinitarian assurance, the, the idea that the, the assurance that you have in your faith is not one that you manufacture, but rather be, uh, drawing on the, the plain truths of the gospel, the, your assurance is based not only in God in kind of a, a uh, abstract way in the one God, but also the three persons of the Trinity have worked throughout the world in such a way as you have a relationship with each one through Jesus Christ. That is, you know the Father because you know Jesus, you know the Spirit because Jesus sent him and has baptized you in the Spirit, etc. But you have a relationship with each member of the Trinity, though we do not go off into just praying to the Holy Spirit or just praying to the Father in a way that we don't think we're praying to all of them. Uh, that is, you're not going off and just worshiping Jesus and not worshiping the Father and the Son, uh, or the Father and the, the Spirit, rather. I hear phrases sometimes in in uh, in songs and in, in doctrine and books that that they're not alarming, but they are a little bit frightening in in some way when people say something like it's all about Jesus. Well, yes, it is all about Jesus, but the Spirit should not be neglected, and you cannot neglect the work of the Spirit in your own sanctification, holiness, and and giftings. And so, yes, I, I say amen when someone says it's all about Jesus, but in a way it's not just all about Jesus. To neglect the Father or the Spirit would be a great travesty. So, it's important for us to see the Trinitarian nature or the Trinitarian basis of our assurance. How do you know that you are in the beloved? John, John has a lot to say about that in this chapter. And then finally, we're going to look at the difference between fear and love. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that at the end of the age, you don't die, wake up, and find out you're a false believer? Because there are people, the scriptures say, who walk around in darkness. Paul talks about the, the ones who preach Christ for gain, who've gone away from the gospel and are just doing things for illicit money and, and worldly pleasures. He, he calls them those who are destined for destruction, as in that's where they're headed unless there's a major course correction. So how do you know? How do you know that you can walk through life without any fear of judgment at the end of the age? That's what John is plainly telling us here, that, they, that we shouldn't walk in fear. So how do we know uh, to not do that? So at the beginning, uh, John's been giving commands throughout all of this epistle. And in the beginning of this chapter, he builds on these themes, as we've mentioned, of light and darkness, sight and blindness, to tell the, the believers to judge. Um, if you look at the pagan justice uh, uh, statue who's modeled after um, one of the Greek goddesses, she has a blinder over her eyes, which is speaking of 
the fact that she is being impartial in her justice. But what John here is saying is, if you're going to judge, you have to be able to see. So you ho- hopefully there's no blinders on the eyes. John here is confident that he, as he tells them to test the spirits, that their evaluation, their judgment will come out right. He, he's also giving a framework for it, but he's not worried overly so that they are going to test the spirits and then be led away into deception. He tells them to test so that they wouldn't be led into deception. So if we're blind, how can we see where we're going? But John here is assured quite properly that no one who is uh, reading this letter in, in the church proper, who is, is going to uh, actually do the testing, is going to be deceived. He says, you all have an anointing from the Spirit, uh, that is, via Christ, and that anointing teaches you. In one translation, it says, all things. And so we are to test every spirit, but what does it mean to test the spirits? Verse 1, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. So you have to be able to weigh the scales and then see where the scales are tilting. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is building on the ideas from the previous chapter. So what does it mean in this phrase to test the spirits? Uh, Does it mean, perhaps, to kind of sit in a quiet place where, you know, you get your fasting in, you get your anointing in, you, you, you then gaze into the heavens and look for the spirits? Is that what John's talking about? I don't think so. Although I do believe there is a gift called discernment of spirits, but that's for situational wisdom. I don't think John here is, is having the idea that these believers are going to sit around and have this mystical experience by which they test the spirits. I don't think that's at all the idea. And the reason why is because other scriptures plainly uh, advocate and admonish other believers for doing these things. In the book of Revelation, which John wrote, To the church in Ephesus, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. This is a a word of admonishment or blessing to the church at Ephesus, not just some individual believers. But you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. So the, the idea of testing doctrine here is connected to testing apostles. And it's notable that John uh, is an elder at that church in Ephesus, as we learn from his other letters as well as church history. So John here is, is being commended as being a wise elder in Ephesus. And the, the message to Ephesus, it's not known if he was an elder at the time of writing Revelation. Anyways, the, the point being that John is, is writing this letter. He receives this understanding from the Lord, and Jesus, in that prophecy, admonishes them for testing between apostolic doctrine and false apostolic doctrine. That is, those who have come to Ephesus, who are wolves in sheep's clothing, who go in and try to deceive and steal away sheep if, if it's possible, and, and here Jesus commends them for that the fact that they do not bear with them. They don't keep them in the pulpits. They don't keep them in the church. So another uh, area here is in the book of Acts, the Bereans being Hellenistic Jews, they knew the scriptures. They examined the teachings of the apostles confirming whether or not Jesus, the Messiah, was, was supposed to come in the flesh. And that 
it was found in the prophets, that is the wisdom literature. Acts 17, verses 3 and 11. This is, verse three, the reason I'm bringing up verse 3 is it's giving context to what uh, Paul and his team were doing as they were going around. Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for, for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. When, whenever we talk about apostolic doctrine, we are not talking about distant, far-removed matters of soteriology or uh, pneumatology or whether or not the gifts of the Spirit are for today, etc. Pure apostolic doctrine as it's found in the epistles and the writings of Acts mostly, although those things are, are leaves of the tree, mostly deals with the, the plain facts that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. He has come in the flesh, and God has revealed himself finally through this, this, this person, Jesus Christ. Not that there will be another prophet coming along and we'll have to follow him as Islam teaches or the Gnostics that there is no real need for true uh, atonement. There's no need for penalty of sin, but rather we can improve ourselves seeking a mystic spirituality to attain godliness or divinity, building on that divine spark of of. Uh, being that we all were given when we became human. So, so plainly, the apostles are mostly dealing with righteousness has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, and the only way that we may be saved is through faith in his atoning work. That is what we mean by apostolic doctrine. And so, um, so with that in mind, this is a, giving a summary statement. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. Now, again, other matters of doctrine are leaves of the tree, and you want to test those as well. But if you, if you don't have someone who plainly believes and teaches that Jesus is the Christ, come in the flesh, finally revealed God with us, uh, if you don't have someone who teaches that, it doesn't matter about judging the leaves of the tree because the root is bad. Verse 11, it says, now these, that is the Bereans, these Jews were more noble-minded or noble than the, those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. What does that mean? That doesn't mean blindly just hearing a new teaching and receiving it. It says they received the word with eagerness, examining the scriptures daily. So they were searching through the prophets, through the, the law, to find out if Jesus was to suffer, if the Messiah really did require uh uh, an, an atoning death and resurrection. So we're not to walk through life, therefore, with hearts that are just kind of like sponges. Do you ever notice yourself doing this? You get in a dry place and you just live, uh, you're coasting kind of, and whatever uh, doctrine or, or encouragement comes by, your heart just acts like a sponge and it just blindly soaks up anything. You hear a word to take better care of your health. You hear a word to take better care of your home or your family or your children or be a better employee. And you don't examine those teachings to see if they're gospel-based and Christ-exalting. Your heart just kind of says, yeah, I need to do better in life. Yeah, I need this teaching. Yeah, I need this article. I find that I'm often guilty of these things. I see an article that's tweeted by some uh, church uh, ministry, the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, etc. And I'm like, yeah, I need to, I'll read that later. And if I just read all these articles, then my life will be together. But that's not what the Gospel says. The Gospel says that we had sin and that our sins were atoned for by Jesus Christ. You don't need to have your household neat and tidy 
and you don't need to eat organic and you don't need to be BMI of like five to be justified before God. That's not what is your justification. That is subtle uh, spirit of the age teaching that is trying to get you to settle your joy in situations and in circumstances rather in the finished work of the cross that Jesus Christ died for your sins and you didn't do anything to earn it and there's nothing you can do to unearn it. That foundation of the gospel is necessary to be able to test the spirits and to war against anti-apostolic doctrine. Go to the gym, clean your house, but don't trust in those things to provide your, your spiritual sust, uh, sustenance. They, they are empty idols who are blind and cannot see, and they will not be, uh, not only are they idols, but they will not uh, provide sustenance for your soul. You will be dry once again as soon as you hit that next goal. Ask me how I know later. Uh, we are to be wise, receiving good instruction, turning away deceits and flattering talk. We are not to buy into plain um, health and wellness teaching, although I do believe that you should be healthy and you shouldn't be foolish with your money. That is not why Jesus came to, to die. He did not come to die for your sins uh, and for your Lexus. He plainly came. Oh, you can drive a Lexus, your Cadillac, your Rolex, whatever you want to trust in. He came to pay the penalty for your sins that you couldn't do anything about. Not so that you could have a jet, the cool sneakers, uh, you know, the coolest phone, etc. So, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus is the Christ. Now, this is why we know that John can't be saying, just look up into the sky and test the spirits, because he says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So what he's talking about, possibly, is human spirits or the spirit that surrounds a doctrine, such as there's a culture of death and, and, and greed and consumerism in our society today. And we call that a zeitgeist or a spirit of the age, a doctrine or a teaching or a way of life of this age. So that phrase zeitgeist gives us a little bit of understanding what John's probably talking about here. He's not, uh, you know, saying, get out your stud finder and put it in the air and test the spirits that way. It's not, it's plainly not that. He gives us a metric, a way to rule or a way to measure. And he says that every spirit that confesses Jesus is from God. So John commands the believers saying that they've already come, uh, he actually commends the believers saying that they've already overcome some anti-apostles or anti-Christs. And he says in verse four, little children, you are from God and have overcome them. So he's saying, you've already been doing this, but keep doing it. You, likewise, we can't just simply uh, remove one idol from our life. We slay the idol of self in some way and then kind of coast and say, okay, well, I got rid of that idol. I'm now a good Christian, and there's nothing else wrong with my heart that I need to prune out. He's saying, you already have overcome some of these anti-apostle doctrines, and you need to further uh, proceed. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. What a great way to identify doctrines that are popular doc uh, in the world, not in the church, uh, Justification by faith is a very popular doctrine, but it's a, it's a good one. What I'm saying is doctrines that are popular in the world, um, you know, improve yourself, improve your career, have a better marriage, etc., etc. All of these self-help 
doctrines that kind of plague our bookstores and our culture, those are plainly seen as the world listening to them. So John then asserts the authority of the apostles against those who are self-proclaimed teachers and diverging from the faith. He says, we are from God. What an anti-politically correct phrase. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Don't think, uh, zealous church member, that this means whoever is from God listens to Grace Christian Fellowship alone. Uh, it does not, this does not mean that whoever is from God just plainly listens to your favorite local church. It means whoever is from God subscribes to the apostolic teaching. So by this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So this is where it's getting, it's going to get heavy for a second. Um, this apostolic doctrine here is going to break out into beautiful literature. And I believe that what John is doing here is he is trying to highlight the gospel as the center of the, the foundations for these commandments, as well as how to live. And it's, it's his literary structure for saying, for, for revealing his cards, as it were, saying, this is what I consider to be the most important. Um, after this admonishment to, to test various teachings, John warns us to test ourselves. And he does it in a beautiful chiastic structure. Remember, that's the hamburger bun. You got the bun, the burger, the hamburger bun on the end, forms a whole. It's a unit together. And so John here is using a chiastic structure, or if you want to use a simpler word, nested and repeating uh, structure, as we'll see. And this is maybe a little small, but uh, pay close attention. Verse 7, those who love have been born of God. That's verse 7. That's idea A. Those who love have been born from God. At the end of the, the poem or chiastic element, we'll then see a repetition of that phrase. So it's, it, this, is, this is found throughout all of the scripture, but here it's used to identify the gospel. The next idea is verse 8. Those who do not love others do not know God. So it's kind of playing off of A. Those who love know God and are from God. Then the next idea is those who don't love aren't from God. Verse uh, nine gives us the, the center of this structure. God has sent his only son so that we would live. And then verse 10 repeats that idea, forming the center or the burger of this hamburger, uh, if you will. God sent his only son to be the propitiation for sins. So that, that those two ideas being connected there by the re repetition of God sent his son forms the whole or the center of this element, this literary effect. And then we see the next verse, B, is an antithetical repetition of the previous idea. So we've, we've dug in and now we're climbing back out. Verse uh, 11, idea B, uh, be anti or be um, apostrophe, those who know God's love, love others. So that's kind of a way, it's a negation of the previous idea. And then finally, all on the, on the way out, if we love one another, God abides in us. So, not, so the ideas here are connected. Verse 7, born of God. Verse 12, God abides in us. Verse 8, we, those who do not love others do not know God. Verse 11, those who know God's love, love others. Do you see that's an, a rephrasing? And then the center here is God sent his only son that we would live, and God sent his only son to be the propitiation of sins. 
So the idea is that John is trying to highlight is how are you to live? You are the only way that you can live is because Jesus Christ has become for you the propitiation of your sins. That is your sins deserved a just and holy condemning from God. That is God in his justice and wrath hates sin and you who are a sinner were destined to die. You were destined towards destruction. And what John says in this core of this chiastic element is that God sent his son so that you would live. And God sent his son to be the propitiation. So how do we live? We live by faith in the propitious or the the satisfying work of Jesus on the cross. That is, when Jesus went to the cross, he took on your sins so that by faith, God could allow you to live in the power of Jesus' life receiving all of the blessing that Jesus acquired in, in, in his life through full obedience and receiving none of the guilt and condemnation and wrath that you justly deserved for your own sin. That is what John is doing in this chiastic structure. This is the reason why I want you to be able to see these things is because you can't hear John leap off the page and shout to you and say, the, the center point of this argument is the gospel if you don't know how to hear John leaping off the page. That is how he does it. He does it with beauty, he does it with repetition, and he does it with poetry. Remember, the Bible is not an MP3. Although you can listen to it in MP3, it's not an MP... The Bible is literature. It's a, it's a letter. And the only way that the writers have to convey importance, they don't have bold, they don't have italics, they don't have outlines. What they have are symbols, literary metaphors, chiastic structures, and poems. If you remember two weeks ago, we looked at a poem. This is kind of like that poem, but John here is using this literary structure to say, the point, the center, the foundation of my teaching is that Jesus Christ came into the world He was sent by God the Father to be the propitiation for sins, and that by that propitiation, you can live. Um, John begins with a command, we ought to love one another because love is from God in verse 7. If love is from God and we have been born of God, then loving others is in our nature. It's in your new nature to love God. Hating others is proof that one is not from God. This is clearly what he's saying in verse 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another. That's a commandment. For love is from God. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God. So John's basically giving a command and saying, this isn't foreign to you. This is within your nature, but do it all the more. And then if it's not in your nature, or if you are a hater of the brothers, then that is not changing you from a Christian to a non-Christian. That is possibly merely indicating that you actually are not from God. If you have nothing but hatred for the brothers, according to verse 8, you do not know God because God is love. John, speaking against the Gnostic spirituality, tells how this love was made manifest in our world. That's what he's doing in the center of this chiastic structure. The love of God is not ethereal. Um, There used to be this idea that the, the distances in space were occupied by this thing called ether, and it was mysterious. So the word ethereal, if you don't know what it means, it just means waftiness. Uh, you know, if you get a spritzer bottle or a mister bottle, you know, the, you spritz and it goes, and then the mist is in the air and then it falls and it's just kind of, there's no form to it. It's just kind of scenty uh, or decorative. 
The worst, the worst idea might, God's love is not an air freshener, if you will. God's love was made manifest. It's not ethereal. It's not a, God doesn't have a lot of feelings toward you in the sense of that's all that he has, though he does have thoughts towards you, desires for you, extreme love. But, but spirituality that is just God loves everybody is not what John is talking about here. He's saying God's love was made manifest. God's love is not sentimental. It's not just good feelings, nor is it even aspirational. What I mean by that is a mother's love is, is often aspirational. She hopes the best for her children, or a fa father's loves uh, also in some way are aspirational. Um, not that that is bad, but it's not that God just loved Israel and kind of hoped that they would get their act together one day. It, he wasn't loving them in the sense alone that they were uh, hopefully, you know, going to make it finally. God's love is not far off. It's not sentimental. It is not ethereal. It's not vaporous. It has substance to it, and it was made manifest. Verse 9 and 10, in this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He then, again, this is the, that's the center of the chiastic structure. He repeats the idea. You can see the first phrase of verse 9 and, the ver and verse 10 are the same. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So we imply that without a propitiation for our sins, we cannot live. God's love was made manifest by Jesus Christ coming into the world unto the end that we would live by faith through him. Likewise, Jesus came into the world to be the removal of the guilt of our sins. And so John then, leaving this poem, uh, he then goes on to say another way how we know that we are in Christ. This is a mighty tool for you young believers. Uh, I'm a young believer. You're a young believer. Um, those who have uh, ongoing sin in their life, who are warring against it, the greatest condemnation from the enemy is that you are not truly a believer. You are not, uh, you're not living up to the claims of Christianity, and you need to try harder, try better. You can always tell a root of uh, your conviction by what you feel motivated to do to remedy the situation. Sometimes the enemy comes in with true condemnation. You really are guilty of that sin you just commit, committed. But then the subtle hint that he gives you is you need to try harder, do better, fast more, pray more, read your Bible more. That is the greatest deception among evangelical believers. That's the greatest temptation for us is that we can, if we just seek after God more, remedy the, the problem. But here, John is basically saying that, no, you don't need to go there. You have, a, you have a deep and true assurance that does not come from your performance. Just like we're not supposed to follow along with every wind of doctrine, every spirit of doctrine, but, but rather we're supposed to build on Christ, the true cornerstone, likewise, our assurance, which is a, a vital element of our faith, is not on our performance. Your assurance is... If you are truly built, if the assurance is from God, if it's not just your own emotional assurance, it does not rock the boat every time you sin. That is, if you sin and do something terrible, something against God's word, you are enticed by your desires, you give in to temptation, that should not rock the boat of your assurance in such a way 
that you are in fear of it capsizing because your assurance is not built on your performance. It is built on what God has done. And that's what John is saying here. How do we know, verse 13, he says, by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So the, the sense that you have a knowledge that you belong to God, that you are from God and that God truly does abide in you, though you are weak and prone to sin, is that you have the Holy Spirit of God. You have a subjective understanding or, or a perception that the Holy Spirit of God is with you. You've been given the, the Holy Spirit. If I give you a $5 bill, you know that you have it because it's in your hand. Or today, you know that you have it because you open your bank app and there's $5. You know that you have it because you have evidence. And here John is saying, you know that you have uh, been abiding in, in God and that he is abiding in you because you have the Spirit in a way that you know you have it. He then goes on to say, moving from the Spirit to identifying the Father. And we have seen and testify, there's that sight metaphor again, we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. So not only is the Holy Spirit a bank of your assurance or a foundation of your assurance, but also the Father sending the Son into the world, fulfilling his covenant promises to Israel that and, and to, the, to the, the whole world in the Evangelion in Genesis 3, where, where God says that he would send a seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head. Because the Father has sent the Son then you have assurance. And then finally, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him. So he's repeating these ideas over and over again. The Spirit, your, your knowing of the Spirit is your assurance. The fact that the Father in history has sent the Son into the world and that he has faithfully uh, distributed that teaching through the church throughout the ages is your assurance. And then finally, the fact that, that Jesus Christ, that you believe in him, that you believe that he is the only son of God. There is no other teacher that you should follow. Uh, ultimately, you don't need to seek after Buddha. You don't need to seek after Dr. Phil. You are following Jesus Christ, the only son of God. What this means for us is that our assurance is built on things that we have not caused and that we cannot change. You are granted the Holy Spirit. You do not earn the Holy Spirit. The Father already sent the Son in history back 2,000 years ago, and you cannot undo that. Uh, Emmett, Dr. Brown, Leo, is it Leo Marvin? It's Emmett? I don't know. Dr. Brown, yeah, Leo Marvin is, what about Bob? You cannot go back in time and change the fact that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin 2,000 years ago. You cannot do anything about that. And then finally, the idea that you can change your confession is only built on an idea if you made up your confession from your own accord. If you were given faith by God and it was a grace from him to you, you cannot do anything about it. Tim Keller tweeted yesterday, if you did not earn your salvation, then you can't unearn it, which is plainly true. That's, that's what we mean here when we're talking about assurance on things that you cannot move. These are deep foundations and mountains which are unshakable. The fact that the Father has sent the Son and that the Son, through the teaching of the apostles, uh, distributed the faith or delivered the faith, and that that faith has, has a continuity of experience throughout the 2,000 years since is one of the greatest assurances of the truth of Christianity. 
people often are looking for apos- uh, apologetic uh, arguments for why does God exist? How do you know Christianity is true? Well, one of the most neglected arguments for Christianity being true is the fact that the scriptures have been maintained for 2,000 years, whereas no other previous writings have, as well as, except for like the Code of Hammurabi and some other things, but those are very short and they're on stone. These are This is a huge book and it's in it's on sheep skin and paper, and, and it's just absolutely unthinkable. Like all the other doctrines, or uh, sorry, um, philosophers and historians, we have like fragments of them, and people, you know, blindly t- trust this is, yeah, sure, this is Homer or Herodotus. You know, these, these are definitely their documents. But, but we've got like one manuscript of that, and they're from like the 13th century. We have documents in the scriptures from. 200 from, from 125. And so the fact that not only do we have the written uh, doctrine of the apostles, but also that the church arose and took over a extremely complicated set of circumstances in the first few centuries of its existence, that is one of the greatest assurances of the truth of Christianity that we often never even think about. Um, that's why you should take the theology class, and you should buy the green church history book, which is a thousand pages, and you should have fun with that. So, so these are unmovable things. The fact that the Father has sent the Son is an established fact in history that you cannot move, and that is the source of your assurance, not whether or not you looked at porn last week, or that you stole from your employer last week by being late or being, or actually taking stuff or that you spoke badly to your wife or husband or friend, or you rebelled against authority or whatever. That is not your assurance. Those are sins. They should be eradicated from your life, but you should not build your faith on anything other than the foundation of Christ. So, uh, oh, I already went through these. So because we have the spirit after believing that the Father has sent the Son into the world, we know that God has loved us. Likewise, um, after saying these three statements, that the, the Spirit, we have Him, and, and so we have assurance, the Father has sent the Son, and so we have assurance, and that we believe that the Son is the only Son of God, we also have assurance. Because of all that, verse 16, there's a summary statement. He says, so we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Notice the twofold nature of this verse. It's, we have come to know and believe. There's a a combination of both intellectual comprehension, that is, you know the truth of the gospel intellectually, and then also trust or belief, faith. You believe it in your heart. You actually hold um, the the truth of the gospel uh, as a place of of precious uh, life-sustaining truth. It's not just intellectual. You don't just know intellectually chapter and verse, but also you trust in it. Understanding the truth of God with our minds and trusting in our hearts is a necessary twofold experience of the love of God. And it is through the hearing of God's word that we are able to believe. So if you have weak faith, if you often give in to temptation, if you often uh, do not exhibit the fruit of the spirit, you need to, in, in one sense, read your Bible more, but not just to mark a checklist off each day, but you need to receive the gospel yet again and again. 
not just through your own seeking after God, but also hearing good teaching, getting help from, from pastors and brothers. You need to not perform more, but rather know more and believe more. Now, in this way, we do not make faith another work, which is often a, tempt, a temptation. I hear people say, I want to believe, I'm trying to believe, but I can't believe, as if um, they need to conjure up some mystical feeling. Rather, though, though God does use specific means, preaching, the word of God, etc., he does not at all require you to come to faith by just doing your Bible reading every day or doing your fasting, though those are good spiritual disciplines. The temptation is always to abuse the, the good things in life in, in excess, to achieve something that they can't, uh, can't manufacture. And so the, the way that we per, uh, per, um, proceed in the gospel is by believing and knowing more, not by doing more, not by performing more, but rather resting more and more in the truth of the gospel. John uses this connecting word by to explain how we grow in love. In verse 16, uh, sorry, verse 17, he says, by this is love perfected in us. This is why I'm saying you don't need to uh, do more spiritual disciplines to earn merit or to earn uh, favor with God, but rather you rest in and come to know with your head and with your heart the, the truth of the gospel. That is, Jesus came into the world to pay the penalty for sinners, and it's a good statement to receive. He says, by this, there is a relative pronoun, the word this, which describes the means by which that we are to be perfected in love. And that refers to the previous verse, verse 16, so that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. Dwelling upon the already established facts of the gospel is a way by meditation for you to grow in love. He says, by this is love perfected in us. That this is a relative pronoun that refers back to the idea that we know with our head, we know with our heart about the the previous three forms of assurance or three foundations of assurance. So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, also we are in this world. This is an amazing set of statements um, we are to grow in love, resting on the truths of the gospel, and that these truths will be not only an assurance of our salvation, but that assurance will be true, and it will be a love-wrapped uh, 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 thing in the sense that we will have no fear um, on the day of judgment. In verse 17, he says, this is love that is perfected in us unto what end? So that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. If you have deep assurance of those things now, what John is saying is that is assurance for the future day when you will stand before the throne of Jesus Christ. In fact, not only is this fear removed so far because you are being perfected in love, but also you should take joy in the fact that he's coming and will one day vindicate his righteous ones. In verse 18, um, he says, oh, I'm not there yet. Uh, in verse 18, he says, there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear. So if we're lacking in love, we certainly often do. We must return to the gospel. And because of the great love that God has demonstrated, we have confidence in the future righteous proclamation or uh, judgment or pronouncement of us at the final day. 
You're justified in faith now today because of what Christ has done in the, in the past. And though we teach and believe and know that Jesus is one day coming back to judge all the men of the earth, men and women, uh, you do not need to fear that day because of the assurance that you have now. That's what he's saying. The righteousness of Christ, which he has in heaven now, being imputed to us now in this world, is a certain thing which removes all fear from us concerning that future day when Jesus Christ will judge all men with holy judgment. He says here, because as he is, so also are we in this world. What John is saying is, as Jesus is pure, as Jesus is holy, as Jesus is in the presence of God, as Jesus is faithfully ministering before his Father on our behalf in his intercessory role, as he is now, we are in this world. Though you are stained by sin often, though you give in to sin often, you are in this world positionally righteous, though it doesn't often look that way. John's, what John is saying here is flowing out of the, the foundations of assurance. He's saying, because you have the spirit, because God sent his son, because you believe in his son, those bedrocks are your way of believing in faith that as Jesus is now, you are in this world. Now, this idea, of course, is a, an idea that requires faith to believe. It requires faith to see your own weakness and yet understand that as he is now, we also are in this world now. Because I don't look holy often uh, or ever, <laughs> pretty much. But I don't know of any other way to understand this verse because as he is, so also are we in this world. That means to me that though I am often uh, failing, one day the holiness with which I have now will be made manifest. If it says in verse 18, therefore, because we are like Christ, who cannot be judged as unrighteous, but has lived a righteous life, and God vindicated him by raising him from the dead, because that is true, we also will be vindicated. That's basically what John is trying to say. Jesus went around, if you remember, saying, I'm the Son of God, I and the Father are one, uh, there is no one good but God, um, etc., etc., asserting that he was the only Son of God. And the Jews hated him for this, and they killed him. And so the point of the resurrection is not just, in a way, that Jesus defeated death. He did defeat death for you, in the sense that one day, by his power, he will raise you from the dead because he has overcome death. But moreover than that, it is God the Father righteously vindicating the claims of Jesus Christ that he is the Son of God. And so if Jesus was judged as righteous or vindicated through the resurrection that he was not found to be at fault, John is basically saying here, we also should have no fear of our future judgment. We will be vindicated. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has, been, has not been perfected in love. Believer, if you see sin in your life and you are afraid that that means you are not a Christian, then you are making an idol out of your, self -perform of, of your own performance. And you need to, rather than attempt to behave better, change and uh, slay that idol and change the center of your trust to the finished work of Jesus Christ 
as the gospel plainly teaches. You need to not trust your own performance, but rather trust in Christ's. And if that becomes true for you, all fear of future judgment will be removed. There is a good godly fear, of course, that John is not talking about here. He's not at all having in mind the holy righteous fear of God or reverence or fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. As it says in Psalm uh, uh, 31, 19, the fear of the Lord causes us to come and take refuge. It says, blessed are all those who fear God. And then it says, those who take refuge. The fear of God is not rather uh, being afraid of God's judgment, but rather being afraid of falling away from God. The fear of the Lord is a respect for, an, ad, uh, an admiration for, a holy reverence, something that we do in trembling. And so this idea that John's saying is you shouldn't have any fear, that doesn't mean you don't fear God. That means that you're not afraid of God's judgment. If anyone says, verse 20, I love God and hates his brother. He is a liar for he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Verse 21, and this is the commandment we have from him. Him, I believe, is a relative pronoun referring to Jesus Christ. When Jesus was asked, what are the commandments? He says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. This is the commandment that that John is referring to in verse 21. This is the commandment that we have from Jesus. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. The commandment that John gives us is to love God and to love our brothers. And he says this to people who already are loving their brothers. So therefore we must excel still more in this. Let's pray and then we'll uh, take communion. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us a mighty trust in the finished work of the cross, that we would no longer seek to live a life that is like a boat on a sea in a storm, but that we would have a deep, mighty anchor in the, tree, in the three truths that John has uh, written about here, that, that because we have the Spirit, we know that you abide in us, that because you sent your Son, we know that you abide in us. And because we believe that Jesus is the only Son of God, we know that you really do abide in us. Lord, we ask you to remove all false assurance that you would, by your spirit, uh, uh, cut away the cancer of performance-mindedness, and that you would give to us a great trust in what your Son has done, that we would behold what he has done for us, that we would put not only intellectual effort into knowing the gospel, but that we would also, with our heart, remove anything uh, that would get in the way from trusting absolutely in the truth of your, your word. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us grace this week as we go forth and love our brothers. We ask you that as we come and take communion, we would, even in this moment, repent of hatred of our brothers, of, of those that we know we've sinned against. Lord, we ask that you would cause us to be reconciled with those people, that not only in our heart we would renounce the hatred or the the malice that we've held, but also, Lord, that you would cause us to truly seek to be reconciled with those who are our brothers. Lord, we ask that you would give us grace this week as we seek to live out your commands. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.